The views expressed in this program are those of the host and not necessarily those of WVUD or the University of Delaware. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. And thank you very much, Jason. And joining me in the studio today is... Susan Strasser. She's the Richards Chaired Professor of History at the University of Delaware. She's a historian of American consumer culture. And the New Yorker said about her that what she writes about, she retrieves what history discards, the taken-for-granted minutia of everyday life. Thanks for joining us, Sue. Thank you for having me, Richard. Well, it's a pleasure. Susie, please. Susie, yes, ma'am. But you've written a whole bunch of different books. You're working on one now. The first of your books was... Never Done, A History of American Housework. What, what did you explore in that book? I explored the history of American housework, just like the title says. Um, I got interested. Uh, I, I actually started working on the history of women uh, when I was in college, and uh, that was the time of the women's liberation movement, and I was trying to get some handle on my own life as a woman, and I uh, wanted to see whether there was some way of talking about women's history, not by talking about famous women, not by talking about political events, but talking about what women actually did in their households. And uh, that's what got me into the question of housework. So that book has some a bunch of the chapters are literally the tasks of housework. There's a chapter on cooking. There's a chapter on sewing. There's a chapter on heating. Because, in fact, making fires was a big job. Uh, there's a chapter on water because before uh, running water, carrying water was a big job. Chapter on laundry, I don't know whether I said that. Um, and, and then there are some other chapters that are about ideas about housework. And um, uh, it, it ends with a kind of epilogue that talks about um, life today uh, in in the context of the stuff that I talked about before. Americans' view of housework has changed over time, hasn't it? Well, I mean, right. housework itself has changed so much over time that there's no way that the view of housework could not have changed. <laughs> um, it, when I first started working on it, um, I was sort of thinking about 17-button blenders, you know, and, and uh, my my notion was, well the change in housework hadn't really made a whole big bunch of difference. And uh, once I really ran into indoor plumbing and uh, electricity and gas, as opposed to having to carry water and make fires for every task that had to be done, I had to really confront the fact that housework really had changed quite a lot and that it had made a huge difference in how much time it took to run a, run a household. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but I'm wondering how much of a role has technology, household technology, played in changing women's role in American society and in the workplace? Well, it's made a huge 
difference in that it no longer takes uh, at least one person working 24-7 to just keep the household running. Um, But the other thing that I tried to talk about was how this household technology and the things that were made for the household um, uh, changed the economy at large and the way I mean I really came as I worked on this book I really came to see the history of housework as a as a lens uh, for looking at American economic development in general which we can sort of use as a segue to talk about your next book because in in the the book about um, housework never done I think one of the things you talk about sort of the prize appliance at one point was that new Maytag washer and dryer combination (laughs) And your next book was Satisfaction Guaranteed, The Making of the American Mass Market. And I I think that was probably one of the areas where advertising made a mass market was in things for the home. Well, absolutely. And um, all while I was working on the housework question, which was really both my dissertation and my first book, um, I always thought that my second book would be about advertising. Advertising seemed right next door. It seemed like I was always trying to draw a line. No, that's for some other project. This is right now I'm, t- I'm talking about the housework. Um, because so much of it was about product introduction, whether big ticket items like washers and dryers or processed foods, you know, little things that people used every day. Um, when I started working on advertising, I discovered that advertising was really only, t- only the tip of the marketing iceberg and that what I was really interested in was the whole marketing process, the whole distribution process. So some of that um, book, Satisfaction Guaranteed, is about, adver- is about advertising and marketing campaigns. But much of it is about the relationships that consumers had with retailers, that retailers had with wholesalers, that wholesalers had with manufacturers, and the ways that branding and the new style advertising that came in at the end of the 19th century really upended those relationships. Uh, In the mid-19th century, um, wholesalers were really in charge. And let's say they wanted to sell white soap, they would put out bids to manufacturers, to soap manufacturers, to uh, get an idea of where they were going to buy their soap from, and then they would promote that soap to the retailers who would promote it to the customers. Um, But once uh, Procter & Gamble started uh, um, advertising ivory direct to the consumer, the consumer walked into the grocery store and said, Mr. So-and-so, I want that new ivory soap. And then uh, then the uh, retailer said to the wholesaler, where do we get that ivory soap? And the wholesaler could only buy it from Procter & Gamble. So that whole direct-to-the-consumer advertising, which really came in at the end of the 19th century, shifted the power in the distribution process from uh, uh, wholesalers the to the manufacturers. Because the manufacturers were now finding, this, I guess, as mass media improved, that they could reach directly out to the Precisely. consumers. Precisely. I have to admit, as you're talking about ivory soap, one of my favorite old New Yorker cartoons is a picture of a, you've probably seen, of a, of a pool, and all these advertising executives are all upset, and the caption is, the day the 
cake of ivory soap sank. sank. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, it just, just that has nothing to do with getting clean, but that was part of their original marketing was that this... It floats. Yeah. It floats. Part of the one of the slogans. 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure was one of the slogans, and it floats was the other. 99 and 4 one hundredths percent pure reminds me of what how Subaru is marketing its cars now. On the back, it says PZEV, partial zero emission vehicle. doesn't say reduced emissions. It says partial, partial zero. zero. <laughs> you know. So what are some other examples of things like that that you can think of that, that in particularly marketed to the household of, of campaigns that, that really reached around the manufacturing process and the, went straight to the consumer? Well, the book opens with a discussion of the Crisco campaign. Crisco interested me in part because I'm a pie baker, and um, I don't use Crisco anymore. But at that time, I used Crisco uh, in baking pies, and I I wanted to work with a product that I actually used. Um, And um, in part because Crisco, which was introduced in 1916, was introduced with the biggest, fanciest uh, marketing campaign that had ever been seen. And uh, so there was quite a lot written in the trade publications about the Crisco campaign. Um, the Crisco, it, I mean, it involved advertising. It involved some home economists who went from city to city and held Crisco cooking schools. Um, Crisco was adopted by particular institutions, some uh, railroad companies and stuff, and they advertised that. They were advertising that this railroad was baking only with Crisco. Exactly. And But my, my favorite was that uh, because it was a vegetable shortening, they – uh, advertised in the Yiddish and uh, Jewish press uh, because um, it was something that it was, you know it was a substitute for lard, which uh, kosher Jews couldn't use. Um, and the the uh, ad quoted some rabbi saying that the Jewish people had rated, had waited four thousand years for this product. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I wonder. I wonder if manna from heaven would have been flakier if it had been produced with Crisco. <laughs> I'm but they, certain, <laughs> but they, I'm sure they didn't go that far in their marketing campaign. That <laughs> um, all these different things you've done are are relating to, um, as you said, the public and the private. And and the next thing you did was one that um, is I think this when I first met you when you were um, working on this book, Waste and Want: A Social History of Trash and. For example, as we were waiting to come to the studio, we had a conversation about plastic bottles. Well, um, all while I was working on Satisfaction Guaranteed, it was during the 80s, and there was a series of environmental events, let's call them. The chemical uh, spill in Bhopal, India, um, the... uh, garbage barge roaming around American waterways looking for a place to dump, Um, Three Mile Island. um, You know, so there was like this series of environmental events, and I, like everybody else, was getting more and more interested in environmental issues. It it occurred to me that so much of what these books that I'd written about, written were about, was the introduction of products and that um, 
the next best, the next thing to work on was really what happens after you're done with them. Um, and uh, so I started investigating trash, reuse, recycling. And uh, probably the most interesting thing that I found uh, was that what we think of as recycling and what we think of as reuse uh, really were just what everybody did before uh, late industrialization. That when people had an understanding of the labor that was involved in making things because they made things and their brothers made things and their mothers made things, uh, they, they weren't so quick to throw them out. And people were just, um, all of the society was just much more frugal at the time, or what we would call frugal. Um, they just took it for granted. It, was, it wasn't a special thing to be frugal. Frugality was part of how people related to the material world. It, it, was, it was essential, actually, to how people related to the material world. So I discovered two kinds of things. One, within the household, just astonishing uh, examples of reuse in middle-class books about how to run your household. There would be discussions about how to mend glass. Um, this is what time period? Middle of the 19th century, well, 18, the 1860s and wow. 70s. Yeah, if you broke something, you, you were going to try to figure out how to put it back together. Or um, when the elbows on your dress wore thin, there were instructions on how to take the sleeves off and switch them so that the, the inside of the elbow where the fabric was good would now be on the outside of each, of each sleeve. Much... Uh, reuse of that kind, uh, dis- discussions of leftover food, of course, but um, even in middle class households, discussions about using the food that was left on people's plates, not just using the food that was left in the serving dish. Uh, the other thing, and that that interested me, but I can't say it surprised me. The thing that really surprised me was a very uh, fully developed what we would call post-consumer recycling system in the 19th century for things like paper, metal, rubber, bones, fat. Um, some of this was done through peddlers and general stores. The peddler would come with his wagon and he would sell uh, tea kettles and funnels and scissors and thread, and he would take away rags. So, th- so I mean, it was um, economically uh, um, efficient because it meant that he wasn't going around with an empty wagon at any time. Um, so he was picking up goods to be recycled, goods to be taken to a tinker or whatever to be repaired in addition to selling. Exactly. Um, I... I had the great pleasure of working with uh, the records in the Harvard Business School of this, uh, they called him a master peddler, but he, I, I would call him a wholesaler and manufacturer of tinware. But um, he, so he had a bunch of peddlers working under him. And he uh, 
um, he kept these lovely little notebooks um, that were kind of pocket sized so that he and so that's what they have at the archives these, these original these little, records these original records these little notebooks and he was as interested and maybe more interested in finding outlets for the used stuff that he was taking in as he was in finding manufacturers of of goods that he could give his peddlers to sell. So he, he was working both ends of that all the time. And we fast forward to the 1980s, and my father, to be eccentric, would whip out his darning at meetings. <laughs> That's pretty eccentric, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but, but there was a time when you know, darning your socks, that was an ordinary activity. It was an ordinary activity. It's an activity of great skill. I admire your father. At, at some point in my own attempt to apply my historical understanding to my daily life, I did some darning, and I can't say that I was very good at it. It's well, really I, hard to do well. I'm not claiming that my father was very good at it, but the point is, is that by the 1980s, the idea of anybody darning socks... I mean, he would do it in places to draw attention to himself on an airplane or in a meeting. But it was pretty much not what middle-class Americans did. I mean, your socks get a hole in them, you. By the 1980s, it's not even what poor Americans did. It's really, um, yeah, quite eccentric. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about the idea that, you know, we all think that, oh, recycling is a hip green thing from the 21st century. But it's it's really this recycle movement. Is, is sort of the tail end of a period of throw it awayness. If you Absolutely, will. and before I mean, when when municipal solid waste collection was first established in cities, there was source separation and recycling. They were recycling different things than we recycle now. Not completely different things, paper and glass, yes. But for example, everybody still had ashes from coal and wood heating, and. People were required to separate their ashes, and the ashes would be used for landfill. So that kind of source separation existed from the very beginning of, uh, of solid waste collection in the cities. And then as the, as the landfill came in uh, as the, the main uh, repository for waste, uh, it became more and more conventional to mix everything up and put it all in the landfill. And it wasn't until people started worrying that the landfills might get filled up that the source separation started again. Again, yeah. It's, um, I think it would tie in, too, to the sort of the changes in the rapid expansion, at least in America, of um, housing and manufacturing that's after World War II. Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, and the notion that that the thing to focus on was production, 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 and more production, uh, as opposed to any kind of uh, environmental sense about the effects of that production, um, let alone the effects of the aftermaths of that production. We're talking today on Campus Voices with Susie Strasser from the University of Delaware History Department, and we've talked about her history of American housework, and a little bit about her book, Satisfaction Guaranteed, The Making of the American Mass Market, and Waste and Want, A Social History of Trash. She's working on a new book. It's not done yet. <laughs> right? Uh, hardly. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
called a historical herbal um, healing with plants and developing consumer culture. There's so many different ways to go here. It, it, it's not just this is not just a history of these medicines worked, these didn't. It's about how it fits in with the whole consumer culture in America. Absolutely. Um, when I first got interested in herbal medicine as a historical topic, I. I, I I had I really wasn't thinking. I thought of it as a brand new thing that I was doing. Um, I I think of the three books: Never Done, Satisfaction Guaranteed, and Waste and Want as sort of a trilogy. A friend of mine said after Waste and Want was published, well, now they can put them together in a box set. And <laughs> so, um, you know, it it was. I had gotten interested in herbs as a totally non-historical thing, as a totally uh, you know. Uh, hobby kind of thing and um, I thought that it was I was going in some new direction and then I started seeing the connections and the first connection is when I was talking about never done a few minutes ago and listing the chapters there's a chapter on sewing there's a chapter on on cooking there's a chapter on laundry there is no chapter in that book on nursing or on caring for the sick and i feel now that that is a real uh um lack in my understanding at the time i now understand from working on this herbal medicine thing that american women had as one of their very major household tasks taking care of sick people and in fact um, making simple medicines from garden plants. Um, so there's that connection. Uh, many of the uh, commercial medicines of the 19th century, what are usually called patent medicines, although most of them were not actually patented because uh, they would have had to reveal their formulas in a patent, um, m- most of those were herbal medicines. And uh, those medicines are crucial to the history of advertising and marketing. They really, uh, the entrepreneurs who who created those medicines were incredible innovators in all kinds of promotional techniques, and um, historians of advertising write a lot about them. But they don't write about them with any knowledge of what the medicines were. They're really basically writing about the advertising and not writing about the medicine. Um, and then I also discovered that, uh, like rags and bones, uh, medicinal plants were traded to general stores and to peddlers. Oh, so really? that, uh huh, and and uh, that's how they got out of the Appalachians into the drug markets of the Northeast. Um, I had the um, exciting pleasure of working at the. Um, University of North Carolina and the North Carolina State Archives with the records of a a wholesaler and general storekeeper named Calvin Coles, who uh, for 10 years before the Civil War sent, he would collect uh, plant materials, roots, flowers, leaves from um, these general stores where they'd taken them in trade, and he would market them to northern drug companies. And of course, his business disappeared during the, uh, it fell apart during the uh, Civil War because he couldn't anymore ship to the, his customers. Yeah, you know, that's fascinating because right now one of the modern issues is drug companies doing bioprospecting, often what we would call third world countries. But 
You just described that process going on in the United States in the 19th century. It went on in the United States in the 19th century, and then in the late 19th century, it went on in what we would call third world countries. Uh, there's a fascinating story about the Park Davis Company selling, sending a young uh, biologist named Henry Hurd Rusby to um, Colombia to seek out coca plants, and um, uh, he... Park Davis was promoting uh, coca products, especially cocaine, as as a as a painkiller um, for quite some time, and and they were very distinctly sending people to South America to find them. Well, we've got just about a minute left. Let's see. You, it's all these different things that you write about. It, it's at first it sounds like they're bouncing around from topic to topic, but you convincingly related them all together to me over lunch last week? Well, um, to me, they're all about different ways that, uh, that the lives we live in our private lives and our households connect to economic life, to industrialization. And so it's sort of about the, the uh, intersection of the public and the private. Someone once asked me, I once said that, and I said, it, I sort of feel like I'm I'm looking at the economy through the kitchen window, and, and someone in an audience once said, which side of the window are you on? And I realized <laughs> I'm on both sides. I like to go on both sides of the window, look at the domestic through the, through the lens of the economic and the economic through the, the lens of the domestic. Susie, thanks so much for coming in and joining us. A delight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website, Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org. Bringing you the vitality of college radio and the diversity of community radio. 91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark, Delaware.